0: Um, Hey, if you're a guest today, a special welcome to you. As Pastor Will on the 4C News video told you, we're going to be using that Connect card. Uh, If you'll put your name and email address and home address on that, we'll send you uh, some certificates for some free Chick-fil-A. But I wanted to speak to you guests for just a moment uh, and say to you that if you're looking for a church, we'd love for this to be your home church. If the Lord is sending you here, we want you. And if he's not, please don't come. You'll screw things up, all right? But we would... (laughs) We would love to have you. And one of the reasons reasons why I love this church is is we really do believe that God put us uniquely here in this place in North Cincinnati to reach out to families. And so what you saw on this stage for us is not a token. It really is part of the heartbeat of this place. We love kids. We love students. And we put our money where our mouth is. And uh, the reason we do that is because we know that if we can drive an anchor in the heart of our young people. And no matter where life takes them, no matter how far they go, that that anchor will hold, that anchor of faith in Christ. And so we do all we can to make that happen. And then we invest in moms and dads and aunts and uncles and friends. So we're here for everybody. We'll take anybody, even if you don't have a traditional family or, you know, maybe you're a solo person right now. Uh, we like to think that God put us here for the spiritual family as well. And the reason I'm talking so much about family for all of you who call this church home is today we're beginning a, a brand new message series and we're calling it Heroes. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at individuals in the Bible who really just rise above And God used them to do dramatic things. They don't wear capes. They don't fly. They can't bust through walls by the sheer strength of their power. Other than Samson in the Bible, he could do some of that stuff. Other than that, they don't look like heroes. But God did something profound in their life. And the world was never the same because of it. Today, I want to take you to Acts chapter 9. If you want to go in your Bible, you can go there on your phone. In your message notes, you can follow along. They're pink today because it's almost spring. I think we missed it, but um, it went straight from winter to summer. But you can follow along in here, and we're going to look at a few things. But uh, to get us going, I want to just um, make a couple statements to you and then tell you a bit of, of a story about a hero. And so the story I'm going to tell you is about a hero that's more modern than the one in the Bible. But to me, they're very similar people. But here, here's our first statement. You may want to write this down is that great moves of God, great moves of God are, um, are almost always preceded by simple acts of obedience. Great moves of God are usually, or almost always preceded by simple acts of obedience. Now, in this room, there are people who are not yet following Jesus. And so um, I need you to understand something. If you're not a person of faith yet, or maybe you don't think you ever will be, that's fine. You're in the right place. We built this church with you in mind. But For those of us who are following Jesus, we are called to obedience. We don't just have Jesus as a best friend who makes suggestions. He's not the great suggester in the sky. The word we use from the Bible is the word Lord. That means he's in charge. He's the boss. And if he's the boss, then we follow him. We are obedient. At least we aspire to be. And truth is, we don't often do it. I certainly don't. But that's what we aspire to. But one of the reasons we follow him It's because we know that when we do, the life that we live is better. The life that we live, the purpose with which we walk, the legacy that we create, the impact of our life, the the raw gravitas of, of our impact in this world is better because we follow Jesus. And great moves of God happen through simple acts of obedience. Now I want to tell you about a handful of people, one person in particular that nobody in this room, to the best of my knowledge, has ever met. But somewhere back in the mid-1970s, there was a little meeting in a small church on the corner of two streets in Chicago. Uh, the streets were Belden and Kenneth. Now, if you know anything about Chicago, they alphabetized their streets. It's awesome. You just kind of follow them in order. So, if you're looking for an address and it's in the case on Kenneth, you just drive till you get to the case. And, and so, on the corner of Belden and Kenneth streets in Chicago, there's a little church building. It's still there. You can visit it if you want. It doesn't stand out all that much. Its spires aren't high. The facade of the brick isn't all that impressive. But It was in that place, in a little room in the basement, that some adults got together and had a conversation. that went something like this. We would like to reach some of the kids who live in this neighborhood. We would like to let them know that Jesus loves them. We would like for them to know that God can make a difference in their life. And so we have a few in our church, but we'd like to reach more. Now, there was nothing all that significant about the people in the room, in terms of their status in life or in terms of their skill set or what they had accomplished. But in that room, they started having a conversation that had a dramatic impact on a lot of people. So these adults, these volunteers in that room, nobody was paid. They said, what we're going to do is is we're going to invest a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of time. And we're going to pray for what's happening in the kids' ministry here. And we're going to try to kick it up a notch. And that's what they did from about 1974, 1975, over that course of that year, they poured all kinds of energy and prayer and time into a kid's ministry. And so about a mile away from the corner of Belden and Kenneth, there was a family um, led by a guy named Paul and Gloria, Paul and Gloria, and Paul and Gloria had some kids and Some friends of theirs from school were attending this church. They were excited about what's happening. and they invited their kids to go to church with them. And they went, and they liked it. And then mom started going, and on occasion, dad would go, and mom ended up giving her heart to Jesus, and she started serving in the kids' ministry. She started teaching people about Jesus, helping little kids memorize Bible verses. And what you don't know about Gloria is Gloria is my aunt. Her name's Gloria. My aunt went to my mom one day and said, you got four kids. We're having this little special thing at our church. And for every kid who comes this Sunday, they get a free goldfish. I overheard the conversation. I was five. (laughs) It may have been a Tuesday. It was early in the week. But for the rest of the week, all I did was beg my mom to let me go get a free 50-cent goldfish. That's how much they were about back in the day. Little goldfish in a bag. You know, they don't last long, but I didn't know that. I was five. I wanted a goldfish. And so my mom relented, and she let my Aunt Gloria take us to church. There were four kids. My brother was too young, so three of us went. And while I was at church, for the very first time, I heard from the Bible a story. I was captivated as a kid. But what really got my attention was is that they said near the end of the service They said, hey, if you come back next week for every kid who comes. Now, I'm I'm walking out with a goldfish. It's a good day. It's a red-letter day for a five-year-old. And they said, everybody that comes back, see this big penny jar? And they had a glass jar maybe this tall, full of pennies. I mean, I don't know how much was in there, about a million dollars to a five-year-old. And they said, everybody that comes back, you can put your hand in this penny jar. And as many pennies as you could hold, you can go home with it. Now, that's total gimmick, total gimmick. But on five, hook, line, and sinker, baby. That's how it began. So we started going. One day, my dad looks at my mom, and he says, those people on that corner at that church, that's a cult. And so you can't let our kids there. You need to go with them to make sure that they're not screwing up our kids. My dad wasn't about to go. He's going to outsource that primary responsibility of the family. And so my mom starts going to church. And in a few weeks' time, she hears the gospel responds, gives her life over to Jesus. About three months later, my dad comes, gives his life to Jesus. And what began as a little conversation of some volunteers in a little basement of a nondescript church literally revolutionized my future and my life. I've served a handful of churches over 30 plus years of ministry now, and Every church I've ever served, including this one, when I taught high school, taught Bible at a private high school around here, every person whose life was touched, really, it goes back to a conversation that happened in a little nondescript church on the corner of Kenneth and Belden in Chicago. But for me, it goes back to my Aunt Gloria, who took the heartbeat of that place and made it very tangible to our family. She didn't know much about the Bible. She had been was a relatively new believer herself, but she knew that reaching kids was a big deal. And she had seen the change happening in her own family, and that was all she needed to look at my mom who she cared about and say, "To my mom, I think your kids would like it and for every kid that goes they get a free goldfish." She just simply didn't have the skills to give her a theological dis- dissertation about why that she should come to church. She hadn't been in it long enough to express even all the benefits that might come if a family were to get engaged in church. All she knew was was that it was important, and then she had this tag that she could offer for every kid that goes, they get a goldfish. And because of my Aunt Gloria's simple obedience, there was a great move of God in my family, an incredible move of God. The life pre-Jesus and the life post-Jesus in my family, radical difference, generational change. I watched my dad, five, six, seven years old, jump in with both feet into his faith because if you trace it back, there was a conversation of a small group of people who mobilized a handful of more people who comes down to one person, my Aunt Gloria, and my dad's life has changed. And we know statistically, friends, just put this in, in, in your brain, we know that if we can reach the dad of a family, the, the father of a family, that the generational impact is exponentially likely. Here's just a couple numbers. If we just reach a mom and the kids, which is awesome when we do that, we have a lot of that here. And if you're a single mom, you and Jesus is enough. It, it is And we'll partner with you as best we can. But if we just reach the mom, the likelihood that the kids will make church a part of their adult life is about 22%. If we reach the dad and the mom, it's about 58%. I mean, exponential odds that the kids will stay involved in church. In other words, the anchor of the soul gets driven deeper when we can reach a family. That's why around here we invest so deeply in marriage. Now we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 and I'm going to read for you the story of Ananias who was for the Apostle Paul an Aunt Gloria who just through a simple act of obedience to the Lord makes an incredible difference. He's a hero. In, in my life, my Aunt Gloria is a hero. She's the one who opened the door. God used that. God could have used any number of things, but God works through people, and he used her. She opened the door to my family's faith, to my personal faith. And for years, until she passed away just a few years ago, she was deeply involved in my family and deeply involved in my faith. And every time I would meet her, she would say to me, Do you remember back in Chicago when we all lived there and how the Lord really moved And what began for her as a very simple act of obedience over a lifetime became incredible discipleship, and scores of people reached. Do you remember that? And I'd say to her, Aunt Gloria, I do. I remember at five years old, memorizing the very first scripture, the very first scriptures I had to, to learn was Psalm 150. I remember memorizing that scripture. Do you want to know why? Because the Sunday school teacher said everybody who memorizes that scripture, if you're a boy, you get a little Hot Wheels car. And if you're a girl, you... Now listen, I didn't care a thing about the Bible, but I did not have enough Hot Wheels cars. And so I came back the next Sunday and I had that thing memorized because those people knew that sometimes people's faith isn't fully developed enough to value the things of God. And so they... Tied on things that mattered. And they invested. Somebody paid for that little car. And I memorized my very first scripture. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was the man named Saul. And Saul had an incredible pedigree. He had the best, the best teacher. He sat at the feet of a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Doesn't mean anything to us. But back in Paul's day, he was the premier expositor of the scriptures. Paul had, even though he was Jew, Paul had a Roman citizenship. That was a big deal. That meant in his community, he's at the top of the list. And Paul was a member of a a group of people in his religious tradition called Pharisees, but not just any type of Pharisees. He was a member of what's called the Sanhedrin, which was the group who led the group of the Pharisees. I mean, he's got title, he's got rank, he's incredibly well healed. He was so into his faith that when this new group of Christians, in fact, at the time, they're just called followers of the way. That's what Christians were originally called, followers of the way. Followers of the way of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus. That's our favorite phrase around here to talk about Christians, followers of Jesus. And these followers of the way were creating chaos in Paul's beloved traditions. And so Paul took it on himself, Saul at the time, took it on himself to try to snuff out this early group of followers of the way. One particular time, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Saul is standing there while one of the followers of the way named Stephen is stoned. And the Bible actually says that Saul held the coats of the people who were throwing stones. He was there. Stephen is the very first person recorded in our Bible, probably ever, who was ever killed because of his faith in Christ. And Saul held the coats of the throne stone throwers. He was rabid about snuffing out the followers of the way and getting rid of this rogue group in his religious tradition. And for the next several months, Saul breathes out, the Bible says, murderous threats at this early group of Jesus followers. One day, Saul's on the road To Damascus. And he's going there because he had gotten special permission from his ruling group to go to Damascus and to continue to try to snuff out the people who are following the way of Jesus. And while he's there, the Bible says he's blinded by a light and a thunderous noise. He falls to the ground, and the Lord speaks to him powerfully and says this phrase Saul, Saul, why do you kick? Against the prods. If you imagine a bear trap, and when it closes, they have those little prongs that stick out, and they go in, and when the bear kind of moves against it, it kind of digs in, and you got them. And and Jesus says to Paul through the voice, through the light, Why do you kick against the prods? In other words, I got you, stop kicking your mind. And Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? In other words, your great power, right? Who are you, this great power? And Jesus says to Paul, his name is Saul. It's about to be changed to Paul. He says, he says to Saul, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Wow. And then the voice says, you're to make your way to Damascus. And when you get there, I'll give you some instructions. So he gets to Damascus. And here's where our story picks up from the Bible. He gets to that place and uh, a couple of impacting things have happened to him since he left home. He's blind. He, he can't fulfill his commission. And he's kind of just waiting for the very next thing to see what's going to happen. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, here's where our Bible picks up and we pick up the story of Ananias. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is an interesting name, by the way, because in Acts already, there's already been another person named Ananias. And this other person named Ananias does something really bad. Some really bad stuff happens to him. You can read about it. But the name Ananias is not a good name in the story of the church so far. So there's this guy named Ananias, and he's a disciple. And the Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias. And he says, Yes, Lord. And then verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas. Let's stop here. In the story of the Bible, there's a guy named Judas. And it's not a good story. He does some really bad stuff. Some really bad stuff happens to him. And it's interesting. I I just think it's interesting. I just want to point it out to you that for Ananias and Judas, up to this point, those names carry with them a certain negative implication. But even in this small way, the story of Jesus, the story of the people on the way is the story of redemption. It's the story of God rewriting stories and legacy. I mean, the name Judas could forever be simply a negative name and a negative implication. In some ways, because of the familiarity of the story, it is a bit. But in the life of the church, there's an Ananias and a Judas who follow God boldly. And so I don't know what perhaps the script for your life is, what you think it is, what somebody else has it. But I know this about Jesus. For everybody that follows Jesus, the script of their life is something beautiful and something good and something awesome and something wonderful, and nothing can stop the force of the good of God's Spirit at work in your life. No reputation, no history, no tradition. God's more powerful than all of that. So go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and you can still visit Straight Street today. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Verse 13. But Lord, said Ananias, I'm sorry, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Let's pause here. So Paul has, Saul has a reputation. He's there persecuting people in Jerusalem. He's got a commission to go to Damascus, continue doing the same because he's good at it. He starts by holding the coats, but the next thing you know, he's leading the movement. People are dying at Paul's orders. People are being harmed because the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament is making sure they get snuffed out. This is an uninspiring beginning. This is a dark chapter. And what we're going to discover is is that God takes incredibly ugly stuff and does something powerful with it. You start with ugly and God makes it beautiful. You start with bad and God makes it good. You start with old and God makes it new. But in between the extremes, there's always something that has to happen. And almost always, it'll be a simple act of obedience that will usher in an incredible move of God. And I want to tell you something. I can't point you to the verse. I can show you it over and over in scripture by example. And I can show you it over and over again. Even in this room, if you trace your history, there's an old There's a blind, there's an ugly, there's a bad, and God wants to make it sightful and good and beautiful. And there's a simple act of obedience in between. And often the act of obedience is this. Somebody steps up and does something. Someone. The story is not about the someone, but that someone steps up and does something. They do a simple act of obedience, and that act of obedience changes the destiny of other people. It's real. It's all through the scriptures. It's the story of Ananias. It's why he's a hero. Even though after this, we don't really hear anything else about him. I mean, he's, in one sense, unimportant to the story, except... That simple act of obedience that he does becomes the turning point for the story. Ananias, I want you to go visit Saul. But Lord, he's, he's that murderer. Lord, you know Stephen. Stephen's with you right now in heaven and Saul held the coach of the people who stoned him. I don't want to go to Saul. Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. He's had a vision that a man named Ananias, by the way, that's you, is going to go pray for him and restore his sight. But Lord, I don't want to... Now, listen, it's hard. to I mean, maybe you hear the story, but it'd be like a few years ago, God saying to you, I want you to go and I want you to find a man by the name of Osama bin Laden. And I want you to put your hands on him and pray for him. That's what that'd be like. But, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I mean, what if, I mean, just perchance, he's really set on taking out the people around here who follow your way. God, why would you put me in a place like that? I'm uncomfortable with that. That's what Ananias is saying when he's like, hold up, on, hold on, hold on, Lord. Lord, just in case you don't know, just, let, me, let, me, let me give you some data here, God. I mean, good idea, Lord, because, you know, you're the Lord. But perhaps you don't know, this is the guy who's been breathing out, in the Greek, literally, murderous threats. So this is not just a, I'm a little uncomfortable. This is I'm worried for my very safety. But there's a simple act of obedience. It's not complicated. It's just hard. You know, as the older I get, the more I realized that so much of of life is not as hard as I thought it was in the sense of it being complicated. Life's not quite as complicated as I used to think it was. Yeah, when I was first married, trying to figure out what it means to love my wife and still get my way, that was complicated. That's a complicated conundrum. And then I started understanding with greater clarity that I'm called to serve her and not necessarily get my way, cleared things up a bit. When I, I held my kids in my hands for the first time, I remember being overwhelmed with the complexity of what the future might look like. All the unknowns, endless variety of potential pathways. And as I've gotten older, the Lord's shown me some clarity on what my role is. And even though I've gotten clearer and it's gotten more. Simple in many ways. It hasn't necessarily got easier. Here, here's the truth most of us already who are following Jesus, we have some clarity on something in our life right now. What we understand is not that complicated, it's not like we don't have understanding, but it's still sometimes hard to actually do. I, I sometimes prefer the days when I didn't really understand it all. Then I at least had some reason for my disengagement. But there comes points in every disciple's life when what's in front of you is not unclear. It's simple, but you just got to do it. And that's where Ananias was. I want you to go put your hands on Saul and pray for him that the Lord would restore his sight. Now, if I'm Ananias, I'm thinking, I'm really glad that guy's blind. Because as he's trying to find me, it will be easier to get away. As he's throwing stones, he likely will miss me. The last thing I want to do is empower this guy to have accuracy. I don't want to do that. That's what I'd be thinking if I was Ananias. He doesn't say that, but something's going on here emotionally. Verse 13, But the Lord said, Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument. And Ananias says, you know, basically, God, where's the fairness in this? I mean, he's been so bad. Why would you have me do this? Go, you know, bless him with sight by your power, but I'll be the agent of that happening. Why would you do that? And then the Lord says to him, I'm going to show Saul just what it means to suffer. A little foreshadowing, we call that in literature. And over the rest of Saul's life, he's going to have a hard road. He's going to have a hard road. And it's not so much that God's paying him back, but God is going to literally transform Saul from a man who brings pain to other people's life and gets his identity from it. He's gonna transform him from that and make him into this beautiful testimony of what it is to become a servant of Christ and to suffer for the gospel. Shipwrecked a couple times, bitten by a snake, beaten four times, stoned three times, and ultimately, he gives his life. He loses his head under the orders of the emperor Nero in Rome. He's going to suffer many things. I'm going to use this guy and I'll teach it. The Lord says, I'll take care of the justice issue. I'm going to show him. Verse 17. Then Ananias went. And that's what turns the story. Go, and he goes. Do, and he does. Speak, and and he speaks, not complicated, just hard. But it changes everything. Ananias doesn't know the whole future. He's got the present speaking loudly in his life. This is a murderer. He's good at it. He's so good at it, they're sending him around to do more of it. He's that good. You know, his, his range is expanding. He's that good. But God says, go, Ananias goes, and it turns everything. Then Ananias went to the house, and he entered it. Look what happens. Placing his hands on Saul, I like to imagine he's standing behind him just so he has room to respond to whatever. I I don't know if he did or not. It's just the way I see it, if I were making the movie, all right? So placing his hands on Saul, he says, look at this phrase, Brother Saul, ponder that. Brother Saul, this is where the gospel blows my mind. This is where the grace of the Lord blows me away. Two words. Brother Saul, there's nothing, brother, about Saul. Nothing. Saul's done nothing. He hasn't repaid a single harm he's done. He hasn't apologized a single time. He hasn't done anything right. He's blind. They lead him to the house. All he's done is he got to the house. And Ananias, who's just trying to walk in simple obedience, looks at him and he says, brother, wow. You know one of the things I like best about our church? We're not the only church that does this. We're not, in fact, the only good church in Cincinnati. There's a lot of great churches around Cincinnati. We're one of them, but we're not the only one. But one of the things I love about us is we really do have a vision for what it is to take people who don't feel like they're part of God's family and very quickly help them feel like they can be a part of our family. Even if they're not ready to commit to Jesus, no team does this better than our hospitality, our guest services team. No team does this better because the top three things we hear people comment on, the music, the welcome, and then the preaching. And unfortunately, preaching is... Not always number one. I'm really ticked about that. Actually, I'm thrilled about that because long before a person comes in here to listen, to me, basically give two sermons every Sunday in the same time spot. You know, that's why I go long, right? You know that, right? I figure if you're going to come about every other week, I'll give you two for one. That's how that works. So y'all kick up your attendance and I'll bring the time down. That's how that'll go, all right? I kind of made that up, but it... anyway. Long before a person ever hears, they've encountered friendly people. They've encountered kind and warm people who sincerely, many of them just a few months earlier were on the outside, but came here and felt like they'd be a part. Somebody invited them. Interestingly, uh, our sign catches a lot of people's attention and the the Lord's already doing something. They're kind of interested. They see the sign and they want to check it out. Some of the best dollars honestly spent in this church was for that sign in terms of just the raw number of people who say, you know, I saw your sign. They don't know. They're going to drive into the parking lot when they get here. We have done all we can to be ready for them. And we want to as quickly as we can say to them, I don't know what all is going on in your life, what brings you into this place, transition, turmoil, change. I don't know what's going on. I don't just moved here. I don't know what it is, but as quickly as we can, we want to do all we can to help you become a part of our family our church family. All different varieties of spiritual maturity and readiness. We, we are, in a sense, we're looking at them and saying, brother, sister. Now that get weird. That goes back to my dad's comment about the cult. It sounds kind of cult-like. Brother this. But in the church I grew up, that's what we said. And our church friends became our family. Jill and I participate in the small group program that's advertised there in Your Life at 4C. And we do it religiously, in our small group over the last three months, many of the people we didn't really know, but they already have, there is a deep, familiar connection that has happened there. There was a funeral yesterday, and um, I I go to the funeral just as it's beginning, and in the room, there's like five of the small group people. They're just supporting this person that some of them had just met a few weeks earlier. You know what that is? That's brother. That's sister. And Ananias looks at Paul and says, Brother Saul. So he went to the house, placed his hand. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Wow. Not only does Ananias follow the Lord, declare Saul as his brother, because the Lord had declared him as his brother, and Ananias doesn't get an opinion about it when the Lord does that. But evidently, Ananias helps him to connect with the other people. He's basically being the guide for Saul in his early steps in his faith. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished, and they asked, Isn't the man this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Great moves of God. Are usually preceded by simple acts of obedience, and there are Ananias's and there's Aunt Gloria's all over this world doing the work of God, and often you don't get to hear about them, but they are heroes who took simple instructions from the Lord, Share your faith, invite people into the family of God. Make uh, the family of God. Make the welcome of God obvious to people. Make the kindness of God, which the Bible says in Romans, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Make the kindness and the welcome of God clear to people. And they do it. Sometimes they do it without theological degrees. They don't know how to give a treatise. They can't defend their faith. They're not great apologists. They simply say something like, hey, we're doing this thing at our church for kids. And uh, you got four kids. And if they'd like a goldfish, they can go with me. That's it. That's it. That's all she did. And the Lord was in it. And nice, just go to the house. Put your hands on him. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little uncomfortable with that, guys. A little uncomfortable with that. Not complicated, but powerful. Now, in your message notes, there are a few blanks. Let's drive this home just a bit. On the top of the page on the left, I want to make a couple things clear to you. Five big realities about God's heroes. Number one, God has been pursuing you. I don't know if you know this or not. If you're a guest, I don't know if you know it. Maybe you don't, but I want to be clear. Not in a scary way, not in a weird way, but the truth is, is God has already been pursuing you. He was already pursuing Saul. God did that. Saul didn't go, you know, I feel bad about killing people. No, no, he, he felt great about it, honestly. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. But God was pursuing him, and God grabbed him. And I love the words that the Lord use, uses to, the, uh, to, to Saul. You know, quick kicking. I got you. You're just hurting yourself, man. You're just beating your head against the wall. Stop it. You know, you beat your head against a concrete wall. It ain't hurting the wall. Just stop. I got you. Give in. God's already been pursuing you. But like a lot, like Saul, like the song uh, Amazing Grace, not, not this, when I say you, I mean plural, all of us, we have been blind. You have been blind. I have been blind about it. I didn't see it all. And in this story, what we discover is two big things. Your past does not disqualify you from God's grace. Ananias is going to make that real to Saul. Brother Saul. I mean, if there's ever a group that did not want to call him brother, it's the Christians in Damascus. Brother Saul, your past does not disqualify you. Number two, your past does not not, um, disqualify you from future usefulness. I don't know what the story of your life is up to this point, but I know this, that no matter what side of the, of the extremes we were talking about earlier, you're on, God can use it. Ugly, broken, wasted, hurtful, whatever it is. <laughs> Old, stuck, addicted, whatever it is. Hidden, shameful, broken. Whatever it is, whatever it is, God wants to make it new and beautiful and awesome and sweet. And God will use whatever he has to to get your attention, to make you ready to hear that you are welcomed in the family of God. Next point. You might be somebody's Ananias to help them see God's best for them. You know the reason I'm talking about Ananias today? And I know I'm talking a lot about Paul too. This hero that doesn't get a lot of face time. He said, I believe in this very room there are Ananiases who through simple acts of obedience will make the welcome of God clear to people. And you do not know the redemptive potential of somebody else. You don't know it. That's why we can't afford to waste a Sunday around here. We have no idea who's going to walk through that door. It might be the next Billy Graham. They just don't know it yet, and we don't either. So everybody has to experience the welcome and the warmth of God. We cannot afford to waste it. We can't afford to waste a single Sunday in kids' ministry. I mean, if you're serving on that team and you hate it, resign today. Because we can't afford to have you take up a space and not invest in those kids. That person might be the next great evangelist that the Lord will send to Africa. We have no way of knowing. It's not our job to know. Our job as a church is to be ready, to be Ananiasis, to welcome everybody with the welcome of God and declare over them the purposes of God. That's our job. We don't get to be casual about it. If we are casual about it, we're not the church. Let me tell you how much Jesus loves people. He loves them enough that if you're casual about his mission, he will take his mission to somebody else. He will. He loves people too much to waste it on people who don't love his mission. The Lord won't send you people to be Ananias to if you're not going to do the simple acts of obedience. He simply will pass over you. He loves people too much to wait for you to get up to speed on the mission of Christ if you're a follower of Jesus. That's why churches struggle and fail. It becomes about everything else other than the mission of Jesus and the welcome of God and the bold declaration that old things are made new by the power of God. That's why I love serving and leading and being a part of this church. I've never been a part of a church where people get it as clearly and as focusedly. I mean, our volunteer teams around here are incredible Because it's almost as if you understand we can't afford to waste a moment. It's worth our effort and our time. That our simple acts of obedience and prayer and serving and extending kindness and grace and giving and loving and jumping across 10 miles down the road to serve. It's almost as if you get that that's the kind of thing that literally God has called us to do and when we do it, he changes the world by it. Now on the other side of your page, We've been talking about it. Let's fill in the blanks. In the New Testament, real quick, there's no separation between the love for Jesus and his bride called the church. I know that today it's really popular to say I'm for Jesus and not the church, but here's a question I've been wrestling with. I mean, I'm not like doing this in a judgmental way, but let me just throw this out. Do you think you're too good to identify with an imperfect church? I have people all the time complain about imperfect church. Of course And so are you. So you get to be imperfect, but we don't. You get to be imperfect, but I don't. Got it. Got it. Thank you. Thanks for being clear. You get to be imperfect, but we don't. Awesome. I'm just not willing to give up the mission of Jesus because we're imperfect. I'm not. I don't know about you. I'm not willing to give up on my marriage, for instance, because I'm imperfect or Jill's imperfect. Not, I'm not going to give up on my parenting because I'm imperfect and my kids are imperfect. It's silliness. Of course we're an imperfect church. We're imperfect because we're incomplete. We're imperfect because we make mistakes. We're imperfect because the leaders suck sometimes. We're imperfect because, fill in the blank, your favorite way. Of course. And so are you. But there is no coming to Jesus other than through his church. That's the way he designed it. It's not my rule. There is no, the church is Jesus' plan A. There is no plan B. There isn't one. This is it. God chose to use imperfect people like Ananias and Aunt Gloria and Four Corners Church and Ben and you. It's incredibly arrogant to think that your imperfection is okay, but you're good enough to declare the imperfection of somebody else and go against the plan of God. That's just my heart on that matter, all right? Let me tell you four stages of church struggle that people have. At first, I've discovered that sometimes people are disgusted with the church and they believe that, um, you know, you're disgusted. You believe that you're better than those people over there. But often, what happens if you stick with it long enough is you discover that you're disgusted with yourself and you realize that you really need grace too, just like those people over there. And often, what happens is you can re enter church, not as a Pharisee to condemn but ready to receive grace just like those people over there. And then what the Lord really wants to do with the disgruntled in church is to make you a generous grace giver, welcoming those who are seeking grace so that we all over here can receive the grace that God has for us. Interesting, like in Saul to Paul's story, what often happens, number two, is that in conversion... What often happens in conversion is people hear and experience the same things, but they can't hear the voice of God in it. All those people that were with Saul, they saw the light, they heard a voice, they said it sounds like thunder. They couldn't quite make it out. Only Saul hears it with clarity. A lot of times people look at you and not have any idea what's going on. That's what's going on with my dad. That's a cult over there. But those people that are in, they get it. Number three, God's not trying to pay you back anything but he is trying to bring you back it wasn't about knocking Saul off his horse and down on the ground and it was about bringing Saul to the purpose to which God had called him and designed his life if you're going through rough stuff right now your heavenly father's heart for you is good he's not trying to pay you back for anything but he might be trying to bring you back all the way to his purpose in your life because number four God's not into retribution but he really is into restoration and he's going to restore in Paul an incredible sense of call. And he's going to redeem that fervency that Paul had on the wrong side of the aisle. And he's going to make it awesome and wonderful. Number five, it takes courage to embrace a sinner. But it also takes self-awareness because you have to remember that you're a sinner too. So let's be clear, all the guests in the room. You're sitting around a bunch of sinners. I mean, if the history of our lives were up on the screen, you'd go running. You would. But that's exactly what the church is. Sinners saved by grace. And it takes courage to embrace the ugliness of sin and, and a person who's stuck there. But that's exactly what the Lord has called us to because number six, there's somebody in your life who embraced you. Number seven, Ananias had no idea that a simple, bold act of obedience would be the tipping point in the spread of the gospel. He was just being obedient. He had no idea. Number eight, God still calls people from persecutor to passionate church builder or skeptic to being white hot about his mission or broken and wounded to healed and restored and sharing the healing power of God. He still does that. I've noticed, number nine, that the greater the damage of sin... The greater the redemptive potential of a life sometimes. There's two extremes in the testimony, and I love them both those that walked largely with God their whole life, and God has raised them up in power and integrity, and those who didn't, but the Lord turned them. Both of those speak boldly and powerfully to me. Number 10, the sin you struggle with and the pain you go through make you uniquely qualified to speak redemption and grace and acceptance to others. The Lord uses it all. And Paul would reference, after his experience with Ananias and on the road, he'd reference over and over again. I used to, but now I. And this was my life, but here it is. The Lord will use everything in your life for his redemptive potential. There's not one wasted tear, there's not one wasted moment, not one wasted hurt, not one wasted pain. That is the power of God, Everything gets washed and redeemed. Everything. Everything. So let me ask you a question, to whom? Will God use you possibly to be an Ananias? You might not get much fanfare. You're, you can't meet my Aunt Gloria. She passed, but even if she were alive, you'd probably never meet her. She moved from Chicago back to her home uh, area where she grew up, and she lived a kind of quiet life as a faithful prayer warrior in her church. But when I needed something, you know who was on my short list to call? My Aunt Gloria. You know who prayed for this church in the early days, probably as much as anybody else? My Aunt Gloria. You know who, every time I saw her, she would say to me, The Lord has a call on your life. You better not give up. Pastors are falling, they're getting all kinds of craziness, but you better stick with it because the Lord has a call on your life. And she's a hero. And you can be a hero for somebody else too. It might be a kid at your small groups table. It might be somebody in the student group. You don't know the redemptive potential of another person. That's why we have to be white hot about our simple acts of obedience to the Lord and in the mission that he's called us to. Why don't you grab out your Connect card and let's take a few steps together. I want to give you two next steps specific to what we're talking about today. The first one is to ask God to send other people, and then the second one will be to ask God to send you. But first, it's possible that you're sitting in our room today, and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. If that's true for you, you can change that in a moment. Next step A says that today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And if you'd like to give your life over to Jesus to quit kicking And to go ahead and submit to his leadership in your life, I'd ask you to take the pen and check next step A where it says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and my Lord. And we'd ask you to do that and put the card in the offering bucket in a few minutes when it passes by. And when I bow my head, pray with me. Use your own words. But say basically to God what the Bible says about you. God, I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. You need to be the leader of my life, God. I've led it long enough. And the Bible says then that you trust the work that Jesus did for you and not the work you did yourself when he gave his life on a cross and was resurrected from the tomb. The Bible says if you put your faith in the work that Jesus did and who he is, that he is in fact Lord, that you can have a relationship with your heavenly father and it can change. You can move from old to new, broken to whole. That's the life that God has for you. Or how about next step B? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. If you want to get baptized, check the box. Or if you have questions, check it. That's how we start our conversation together. And the next step, C, is the one where you're gonna. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to ask God to send an Ananias to your loved one. So here's how it goes. Father, here's a prayer. I want you to pray every morning this week. Father, continue to pursue, and then you can fill in the blank. It's your son. It's your friend. It's your mom. It's your dad. It's that person you work with or go to school with. God, would you you already pursue them. Would you continue to pursue them? And God, you love him or you love her more than I do. It's true. He does. So would you send an Ananias who'll help the scales come off so they can see? They could sing amazing grace with integrity. I was blind, but now I see. And would you fill them with your spirit? God does that sort of stuff. He really does. In your life, I guarantee it, there's at least one Ananias. Guaranteed. God does it. So maybe he'll do it for the person. Ask him to. And the next step, D, is a bit more direct. It says here, pray this prayer. Father, here am I. Send me. Would you open doors for me to be part of other people discovering their redemptive potential? In other words, God, would you make me an Ananias? I'd love it if you'd send people into my life so I could look at them and say, Brother, sister, the Lord has his hand on your life. He wants to use you. The next step C is what we talked about last week, and so many of you responded. It's incredible the way you guys get it here, and I'm just honored to serve with you. It says, I'll help provide 4C kid volunteers a break for the summer. Our volunteers need to go on vacation. We don't want to stop our programming. So would you send me some information so I can see when I can serve over the next three months? One week, maybe, maybe four, maybe two, whatever. But if you check this box, we'll send you opportunities to serve in our kids' ministry while our volunteers take their vacations, and it allows our programming quality to stay high and our impact to stay deep, all right? So next step E is to potentially serve in kids, and we'll send you all that information. Once you set the card aside, if you call this church home, this is your opportunity to financially invest here. I got to tell you an amazing story real quick while that, they're coming. So people around here give to missions. That is typically worked outside the country, and there's always a little bit of money in the account, and Last week, um, I had lunch with a missionary in Africa. He—he he was actually a former warrior um, in his African tribe and uh, very poor. Made some horrible mistakes. Found himself in a church, saying to the Lord, "God, if you can redeem me, I'll follow you with my life." And the Lord saved him. And he has a ministry of about eighty thousand square miles that he serves. So he was in the United States with some pastors uh, raising some money, and we had lunch, and I knew we had a little bit of money in our fund, and, but at the same time, our dollars here all have a purpose, and so I called Ilsa, I said, look, if we can, um, she does our finances, can we give this guy some money? She's like, sure, Ben. I mean, we have some, sure. And um, so we did, but I, I'm a little cheap, guys, to be honest with you, I'm a little cheap, that's the way I'm wired I don't, don't like it. I like to think I'm generous but at the end of the day I know I'm accountable for every penny given so I just kind of prayed about that God you know this is good it's worth it it's awesome I believe in this so he came here to the building we stood right here together with the staff and prayed and it's like the Holy Spirit filled the room I mean it's a Thursday and the Holy Spirit filled the room it was just beautiful just beautiful and on Thursday afternoon Ilsa received some money in her hand for the exact amount we had just given away exactly Boom. Just like that. Boom. And I was reminded you can't outgive God. You just can't outgive God. Simple acts of obedience. Thank you for your faithfulness to this church. Let's bow and pray about our next steps and our offering. Father, thank you. God, I want to thank you for the Ananias in my life, my Aunt Gloria. She's with you, Lord. But even when she was here, she was with you. She was your servant her whole life. The moment you changed her, she got serious about your call on her. God, I want to thank you that in this room there are represented dozens and dozens of Ananias, people who helped open the door for us to experience your warmth, your welcome, your grace. God, I'm grateful to serve in a church that gets it, that we understand your mission, and people serve faithfully and they give and they're a part of what you do. But God, in our hearts, on our hearts, there are people who aren't yet following you or they're walking in active disobedience. And I pray, Lord, that you would send Ananiasus into their life. That there'd be people who would help the scales to come off so that our loved ones can see you, respond to you, and follow you. I pray, God, boldly that you would use us to be Ananiasus in the life of other people, the lives of other people. Father, I wanna thank you for what you're doing in our congregation. We see your spirit at work all among us. Specifically, Lord, right now, I pray for those men and women who are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I wanna follow you with my life. I can't save myself, so I trust the work you did on the cross and in your resurrection. Father, as we give our offerings today, as we take next steps, I pray, Lord, you would help our small acts of obedience, even in this way, to go far and wide for your kingdom. You would would impact literally millions of people because of the work, the collective work of this church. You would help us to grow deeper in our relationship with you so that we could be more powerful agents of grace in this world. Thank you for what you're doing. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, God's strong and powerful Son. Amen and amen.